Well, for quite some time, we have been discussing the third major section on our general outline for the whole book of Revelation, which is called the program of Jesus Christ. This is the longest section of Revelation. It began back with chapter 4, and it will end with the end of the book, chapter 22. Well, in chapters 4 to 19 of Revelation, we have been looking and will continue to look at the details of the seven-year period of time most commonly referred to as the Tribulation. We have progressed through the seven seal judgments, and we have also progressed through the six trumpet judgments, the first six of the seven trumpet judgments. And actually, we even heard the seventh trumpet sound back in Revelation 11.15. But we haven't seen the contents of that trumpet. We heard it sound, but we have not seen the contents of it. Well, in the chapter that we now come to, which is chapter 16, we finally have arrived at the point in time where John saw the contents of that seventh trumpet judgment. And, of course, the contents consists of the seven vile or bowl judgments. These are the plague judgments that we saw being prepared and given to seven angels in the last lesson on chapter 15. The vile judgments differ from the seal and the trumpet judgments in that they are far more severe both in their global extent and in their intensity. There is no longer any divine mercy mixed with God's judgment and his wrath. These vials are filled to overflowing with God's righteous indignation, his wrath. The plagues of the seven vile judgments are not for the purpose of warning men about greater wrath to come, as the trumpet and seal judgments were. These plague judgments are the greater wrath to come, at least here on earth. Unlike the seal and uh, trumpet judgments, which God not only used for the purpose of judgment, but also for the purpose of conviction, and conversion, the bold judgments are the pure, they will be the pure expression of the wrath and the vengeance of a holy God. So this lesson on the seven vile judgments has been entitled Undiluted Wrath. The only glimpse of any mercy that we are going to see in this chapter is seen in the fact that the outpouring of God's wrath in these seven vials will be relatively short. They come in rapid-fire succession, and it will be rather short-lived. It will be absolutely horrendous, horrific, if there's such a word. But the good news is that it will merely last a few years, and when it is finished, the sky will remain sunny and clear for 1,000 years. Well, our outline for chapter 16, as you can see up here, consists of three main sections. We will discuss the great voice, the great vials, and if we have time, we will get to the great variance. The great variance actually consists of verses 13 to 16, which I'll skip over so we can get all seven vials at least accomplished. If I run out of time, then you can just study about the great variance uh, from your notes. And perhaps I'll put it on the cassette tape. So let's begin by looking at the great voice. And for this, we just look at verse 1. Chapter 16, verse 1, John says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. That hour of final judgment can be delayed no longer. So the seven angels with the vials of God's wrath are given their marching orders by a great voice which comes out of the smoke-filled temple. Remember back in Revelation 15, verse 8, the temple is filled with smoke. And, of course, the fact that this voice comes out of the temple of heaven clues us as to the identity of this one who is speaking. The great voice must belong to none less than deity. It's the same great voice that John heard back in chapter 1, verse 10, the voice which belonged to the glorified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has, for a very long time, been speaking to men in love and in grace and in mercy because he has been offering them forgiveness and salvation through himself. However, in the scene before us today, 
deity's wrath against man's continuous willful sin and rebellion can be restrained no longer. And therefore, the holy voice in the temple of heaven gives the command to commence the pouring out of the final judgments, which will purge the world of all human and demonic sin and rebellion. Until these seven plagues will be completed, no man or woman will be able to enter into God's temple. That's what we were told back in verse 8 of chapter 15. It said there that the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. In other words, no yet unsaved person will will be able to enter into uh, the temple either by prayer, by their prayer, or by salvation, spiritually speaking. They won't be able to enter into God's presence. God's mercy and his grace will be withdrawn. Prayer will go unanswered. We actually have this predicted for us by Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, which I have in your notes. Heaven will be barricaded so that no one can enter in until just, um, justice is satisfied. So this is definitely undiluted wrath. No one will be saved while these vile judgments are being poured out. So the seven angels who had emerged from heaven's temple with the seven plagues will go their assigned ways in order to pour out their particular judgment of their vile on the earth. So we move now. That's the great voice. Let's go to part two, the great vials. And in this section, we're going to look at the seven judgments. First of all, sores on unbelievers, then the sea turns to blood, streams turn to blood. There's a scorching heat from the sun. Then we'll talk about the seat of darkness, the shrinking of the Euphrates River, and then the great storm of the end, which consists of three things, the great voice, great earthquake, and the great hail. Let's begin by looking, first of all, at the sores on unbelievers. And for this, we'll read verse 2. This is vial number 1. It says, And the first, that's speaking of the first angel with the vial, the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. The first vile judgment is going to be directed against the worshipers of the beast, the Antichrist. These worshipers will have demonstrated their allegiance to the Antichrist by allowing his mark to be permanently attached on or implanted in the skin of their foreheads or their right hand. They will have refused... And they've had many opportunities to accept, but they will have continuously refused to accept um, the true Jesus, the true God, the true creator, and worship him. So God will add his own mark. They've taken the mark of the beast. Now God is going to add his own mark to their bodies in the form of physical sores or boils. And this is just exactly what he had said that he would do to those who refused to obey his commandments. When did God say this? Well, he said it all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Right from the very beginning, he had said, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And then he spelled out specifically the following curse, among others. He said, The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt. He's speaking there about the boils of Egypt, one of the ten plagues of Egypt. And with the emeralds, and that's a word for tumors, and with the scab, and with the itch, whereof thou canst not be healed. No cure for these things. And he said also in Deuteronomy 28, The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot. I mean, that's the bottom of your feet. To the top of thy head, covered from head to not even toe, but to soul with these horrible sores. So men, as far back as the time of Moses, had been warned by God in his written holy word that this 
vile judgment of this plague would fall on them if they continued to disobey his commands. Well, what are his commands? They're up here if you want to come and read them. These are the most important ones, the Ten Commandments. What are the first two? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And what's the second one? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or earth, blah, 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 blah. We all know it. What have men in this, at this time done in the tribulation? They have disobeyed Exactly what God told them not to do. They have worshipped other gods before God and they make a, a graven image of the man who is even possessed by Satan himself. God, you know, will never ever allow his glory to be given to another. So when men all over the world will turn from him completely and give themselves instead to the worship of the devil and the beast... God will step in to vindicate his holy name. So the first vile judgment is really God merely keeping his word, keeping his promise that he had given all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. So a very hideous and painful, the word noisome, which is found there in verse 2 in the King James Version, literally means painfully bad. So it's going to be very painful types of sores, like boils, are going to strike every individual who will have taken upon his body the mark of the beast. And these gross, ulcerous sores will cover their victims everywhere, literally, as we said, from the top of their heads to the bottom of their feet. Because these people will have bowed themselves, and how do you bow? I mean, you have to kneel on your knees. It involves your legs. I think it's interesting that Deuteronomy 28, verse 35, specifically said that their knees and their legs would be infested with these boils. The third angel, back in Revelation chapter 14, had warned the people. If you go back there and look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 14, that third angel had warned them that if they worship the beast and uh, his image and received his mark upon them, that they would drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which would be poured out without mixture. In other words, without any mercy. And he also warned them that they would have no rest day or night from their torment. And yet they will not have heeded his wise counsel. So their time of restless torment, which uh, will continue for all of eternity, will begin with this plague of scabs and boils and ulcerous, cancerous, malignant type uh, sores that will just literally cover their bodies. And I imagine that they will be uh, putrefying, you know, have a terrible odor about them, as well as making them extremely ugly. Their outside will be a picture of the ugliness of their hardened hearts inside. And we'll see their hardened hearts this morning three different times. An amazing aspect about this first vile judgment is that it won't affect those who have refused to accept the mark of the beast and are still living somewhere on earth. This awful plague of the boils will only come to those who have the mark of the beast on them. And that's exactly what occurred, you know, back with the plagues of Egypt in the days of Moses, you know, when they suffered from lice and from frogs, as you see here, and from locusts and from darkness and hail and all kinds of awful things. Those plagues only affected and tortured and tormented the Egyptians, or the Egyptians at least who had not been converted to the true God. But the Israelites were spared from these things. It tells us over and over again in Exodus 9, 10, 11, and 12 that it didn't happen to the Israelites in the land of Goshen. And this will be exactly what will happen again during the time of the vile judgments or the bold judgments. These sores will only manifest themselves on those who are worshiping the beast. Okay, let's turn now to the second vial, where the sea turns to blood. And for this, we look at verse 3. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea. 
And it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. In the days of Moses, and we'll be talking quite a bit about the plagues of Egypt because many of these vile judgments do parallel the plagues of Egypt. It was the Nile River, remember? The Nile River turned to blood. And then with the opening of the second seal judgment, there was a rider on a red horse who came across the scene of human history in order to shed much blood. Again, we have reference to blood. Then with the sounding of the second trumpet judgment, we found that one-third of the seas, the salt waters of the world, will turn to blood. But now with the second vile judgment, we find out that the entire sea will turn into a vast stench of crimson red, which appears to John as the blood of a dead man. In these toxic oceans... Nothing will be able to survive. And the billions of fish and marine animals and invertebrates and marine reptiles will all perish. We're told that every soul will die in the sea. Their decaying bodies, if you can imagine, will further poison the oceans and contaminate the seashores of the world so that the sea and all of its many strange and unique creatures will become an offensive stinking pool of death. Chemically speaking, the um, composition of salty seawater is almost identical to the composition, the chemical composition of blood. So only a relatively small modification of the ocean's chemical solution would give it a blood-red appearance and a toxicity which would kill all marine life. Now the angel of the waters, which we are told about down in verse 5, certainly knows far more about water chemistry than contemporary organic chemists. And so he would be very easily able to produce such a lethal transformation of the waters of the Earth's oceans. It's very possible that this second vile judgment will bring about the permanent end of the oceans of the world. They will have completed their purpose in God's plan and they will die. The oceans of the world. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Because they cover so much of our globe right now. But this will correspond with what we learn about with the pouring out of the seventh and final vile judgment, which we'll get to later this morning, which will result, if you want to look at verse 20, when the seventh seventh vile judgment is poured out, the result is that all the islands and the mountains of the world will disappear. Well, when you think about this, when all the mountain ranges of the world flatten out, Their tremendous masses of granite and limestone and sandstone, of course mixed with earth as well, will all be broken up and all that extra earth and rock has to go somewhere, right? Where will it go? It will fill in the deep basins of the oceans so that they will be filled as they were but before the time of the Noahic flood. The waters then will not only be absorbed into the land, but much of the water will evaporate into the atmosphere, and this will be aided by the um, result of the fourth vile judgment. If you want to look at verse 9, 8 and 9, the fourth vile judgment, which we'll also talk about in a little while, creates a great heat wave. The the sun rays will be just increased, Isaiah said, even seven times. And so that will cause the ocean waters to evaporate much greater than they are now and perhaps create around the globe, the world, again, a water canopy, a water vapor canopy, just as has existed, had existed before Noah's flood. You know, that's why people lived so long back in those days of the patriarchs. They lived to be 800, 900 years was no big deal. And that was because they were protected from the aging influence of, of the sun's rays. That's what ages us. 
And so with all this massive uh, evaporation, perhaps a water canopy again will be developed around the earth. And that's why people in the millennial kingdom will live again very, very long lives. So it all makes sense. And so here in the vile judgments, God is preparing the world. We'll talk about this later again. Preparing the world for how it will be in the millennial kingdom. The scripture tells us that in the new earth, there will be no more sea. I mean, you know, you might think I'm really crazy saying this, but read it. It's in Revelation 21.1. There will be no more sea. And so these bold judgments are just preparing the world for the way it used to be before the flood. So the millennial earth will be a prototype of the new earth. You know, it perhaps... The millennial earth will combine some of the features of both this old earth that we know of and the new earth. When, as I said, when the um, water vapor does, when the water vapors, vaporizes into the air, this will be a good reason for people living so long. We might say, well, why will they live to be so long? Because it actually says there's no death in the millennial kingdom. And this could be because God is protecting, putting people back into a terrarium type of effect as they had before the flood. It's really interesting. I was reading a book that talked all about this, and it really, really interested me me very much. It's by Dr. Henry Morris. It's his commentary on Revelation. If you want to ever read a book um, on Revelation from a Um, a real scientist. He's the one who started the Institute for Creation Research, and he has a real different approach to Revelation, and I really enjoy reading his commentary. Okay, let's look now at the streams turning to blood in verses 4 to 7. This is the third vial. It says, And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. And they have shed, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Well, this third vile plague is similar to the third trumpet judgment, if you will recall, because that turned one-third of all the fresh water supply of the earth into blood. However, this latter judgment, the vile judgment, will affect all of the rivers and the fountains of the waters of the earth. Apparently, the waters of the earth's rivers and streams will not be as toxic as the ocean's waters when they turn as the blood of a dead man because here we're told that people will still be able to drink it. In verse 8, it it indicates that they will still drink this bloody water. It will be bitter, of course, and it will be horribly repulsive, but perhaps by some expensive means... Men will manage to make the bloody water safe to drink. Also, as you probably know, when water evaporates, and remember the next judgment is this intense heat wave, which will really cause water to evaporate more. When water evaporates, all the harmful poisons, the harmful ingredients are removed. So any precipitation in these days, any rain, could be, uh, would bring pure water back to the earth. And so perhaps men will manage to survive by catching whatever rainwater falls into some you know, large cisterns or something like that. Otherwise, there would be no one left on earth when the Lord returns, because without water, men cannot live. And I can imagine that they'll be really going through alcoholic beverages. You know, when they have nothing good to drink, they'll, they'll consume all the alcoholic beverages that are on planet Earth. So people will just be living in sort of a stupor, a drunken stupor at that time. Well, in verse 5, I, I just thought about that. That's my own imagination. But I'm sure it'll be true because they'll be so thirsty, especially when the sun is beating down on them, that they'll drink anything and everything they can get their hands on, especially alcohol. Now, in verse 5, John heard the angel of the waters make a statement. And this angel, 
who is apparently responsible for the water of the earth, declares that the judge of all the world is acting in perfect righteousness. This water angel recognizes the poetic justice of God in turning the the fresh water supply of the earth into blood because unrighteous men, which includes, of course, the beast and all of his followers, will have shed the blood of many of God's people, many of God's saints and prophets, which, as they have done, all down through the ages. Satan's followers have killed many, many of God's people. So God is perfectly righteous and just in judging the murderers of his people by giving them blood to drink. Poetic justice. God is righteous. In fact, you know, that's exactly what Satan worshipers are told to do, that they they have to do when they are initiated into satanic cults. They do have to drink blood. And apparently men can survive by drinking blood. Awful thing to think about. In chapter 6 of Revelation, we had heard a great multitude of the martyred tribulation saints uh, from under the altar, the brazen altar of heaven. Remember, they cried out for vengeance against those who had murdered them, and they cried out for God to vindicate his holy name. Well, now, here in chapter 16, the eternal God, the one who was and is and always shall be, see verse 5, it says, which art and wast and shall be, he answers that prayer of the tribulation saints by pouring out this third vile judgment of blood on those who had shed so much blood of so many of his own children. And then the response to that, the unanimous cry of the martyred tribulation saints comes out again from the altar in verse 7. And what do they say this time? They say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. God is a righteous God. Regardless of what we think of these judgments, his acts are righteous. And he will judge unrighteousness in a holy, righteous way. Scorching of the sun. This is the fourth vial, And for it, we look at verses 8 and 9. It says, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. And power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. When the fourth angel pours out his bowl of wrath on the sun... It's going to heat up to a great intensity. By the way, as we go through this chapter, notice how many greats there are. Great, 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 all over the place. So it's going to heat up to a great intensity, and the solar radiation will send waves of scorching heat on the earth down under, you know, below the sun. And this was prophesied to happen. This is nothing new here. Malachi predicted this. Isaiah predicted this. Moses predicted it back in Deuteronomy again, that they would be, men would be burnt with hunger and devoured with burning heat in the end days. And Isaiah, I guess I already said him, many, many of the Old Testament prophets predicted this burning from this increased heat of the sun. Now, some Bible commentators suggested that just as those ulcerous sores that will cover people from head to toe could be the result of the aftermath of a nuclear uh, poisoning from atomic warfare, which may have taken place during the first half of the tribulation, so too they suggest that the, um, that the destruction of the ozone layer, which could be a result of nuclear warfare, could result in the scorching of the sun's rays. You know, if the ozone layer is gone, the sun will really beat down on men terribly. Actually, it would burn them all up if there wasn't some kind of protection there. And maybe the counteraction will be this thinning um, canopy of water vapor that will start to develop when the waters of the earth evaporate so rapidly from this increased sunlight. I don't know how it's all going to work out. I just know God is not going to wipe out everybody. 
Now, somehow, as with the boils, this scorching heat will not affect those who belong to God. I don't know how this is going to work, but it doesn't affect those who are saved during the tribulation. How do I know this? Well, Psalm 121, verse 6, it's a promise that we've all read before, but it probably hasn't meant very much to you and I. But believe me, this promise is going to mean a whole lot to the tribulation saints who are living during the time of these vile judgments. What does that verse say? It says, The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. You know, with the increased heat and light from the sun, which I said Isaiah says will be sevenfold, that means the moon at night will be like our sun is during the day. So this will be a very comforting verse for the tribulation saints to know that the sun will not smite them by day nor the moon by night. Now if we take into consideration the situation at this time with the water supply, we can just imagine how the increase from the heat of the sun is really, really going to cause men and women to suffer horribly from thirst, even more so than just having a lack of good drinking water. Now the sun is beating down on them. And they will be so thirsty that, in fact, they will be willing to drink bloody water. Probably many people at this time will die of thirst, and others will die of heat strokes, and others will just die from heart attacks, fear. And those who do not die will, of course, be miserably uncomfortable, to put it mildly. And remember, too, that they are covered from head to sole of foot with boils, ulcerous, awful sores. And you can imagine what the sun, the heat, will do to that situation. They'll want to put clothes over themselves to protect themselves from the sun, but the clothes will only irritate the, the ulcers and to take the clothes and then they have no water to to cool themselves down with even their bodies i mean if they can drink just to survive but everybody will be filthy because there won't be enough water to cleanse yourself i mean it will be just just imagine a horrible horrible situation well you would think that such an experience as this would surely drive men to their knees in repentance to god but instead, we read that there is a totally different reaction altogether. In verse 9, we find the first of three times in this chapter where men blaspheme the name of God and repent not to give him glory. You see, they well know who it is who is sending these judgments. They know it's God because they're blaming him for what's happening to them. And yet, rather than submit to him... And beg him for mercy, they blaspheme his very name, and they willfully refuse to repent. You know, to me, this reaction is more amazing than any of the vile judgments. It's more amazing than all the vile judgments put together. I just can't imagine. This response of men to these hell-like conditions illustrates to us really the most severe rebellion and enmity to the will of God that we can find anywhere in mankind's long history. This is it. This is the epitome of willful rebellion. Well, after these suffering people, I mean, all, all that they can think to do after all of this suffering is that they will raise their angry fists in the sky and curse God because they will not have responded, responded to the love of God. The wrath of God is only going to irritate them further. You know, that's what, when it talks about the gnashing of teeth in hell, when men are gnashing their teeth, well, that can be from pain, but you know it can also be from anger. Because in all through hell, I think they're going to be raising their fists and be angry at God. That's, this gives us a, a foretaste of what hell is all, all about. I mean, think about it, what we're reading here. There, men in hell are going to suffer from thirst, and they won't even have bloody water to drink there. Nothing. They'll suffer from thirst. They'll suffer from terrible heat. And the next plague judgment we read about is darkness. They'll be in utter darkness. We also read here that men are going to be gnawing their, teeth, their um, tongues for pain. They'll be gnashing their teeth for pain. We, what we have here is a picture of a foretaste of hell. 
The simple tragedy of men in the world is what we have told to us in Romans 121, where it says, even though they knew God, see, these men know God exists. They don't know him like we know him personally, but they know God exists. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And speaking of darkness, let's look at the seed of darkness, verses 10 and 11. This is the fifth vile judgment. Verse 10, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds." The fifth bowl judgment, there's a picture down here of the fifth one, parallels the ninth plague of Egypt, which brought darkness, remember, upon the kingdom of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is a picture, a type of the Antichrist. Brought darkness on Pharaoh's kingdom, but remember there was no darkness on the Israelites over in the land of Goshen. This fifth Vile judgment is specifically directed against the seat or the throne of the Antichrist. The result of this judgment will be a thick darkness which will cover not only the throne of the Antichrist, the beast, but also his kingdom, which I imagine will mean the revived Roman Empire. So while all of the rest of the world will be in blinding, blazing, searing sunlight... The kingdom of the beast is going to be in heavy darkness. We're told it will be full of darkness, so thick darkness. And this literal darkness, we do take these plagues to be literal, just as the plagues of Egypt were literal. This literal darkness will illustrate the moral and the spiritual spiritual darkness of the beast and of his kingdom and those who follow him. Now, since these men will have chosen willfully chosen the powers of darkness as their spiritual guides and they will have rejected the true light of the world the lord jesus christ god is going to give them exactly what they chose what they desired john 3:19 contains the lord's own words when he said and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They loved darkness, so God's going to give them the darkness that they love. Now this also was predicted in a number of, um, of passages in the Old Testament. Zephaniah 1.15, for example, said that the day of the Lord is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress. A day of waste and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of cloudy and thick darkness. And Amos 5.18 says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. And there's also other passages as well. By this time... We've just finished, what, the, the fifth judgment, the fifth vile judgment. By this time, the judgments will have become so terrible and so unbearable that people will literally be gnawing their tongues for pain. And this is just another indicator of what hell will be like as men are forever tormented in total darkness and they gnash their teeth and probably chew their tongues there too for pain. Yet the response of these men, unbelievable, is that they continue to blaspheme the God of heaven. Um, Verse 11, because of their pains and their sores, and they repent not of their wicked deeds. So once again, we find out that these men who will be suffering know exactly who it is who is inflicting them with all of their troubles. And it's interesting to me to see how they will actually be punishing their own tongues, I mean, chewing on their own tongues, which they will be using to wickedly blaspheme God. The beast, so you see, God will be using them to punish their own wicked tongues. The beast whom they had thought to be so powerful and so wonderful... Remember when they said, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And they really put him on a pedestal so much that they worshipped his image. 
He is now going to be sitting powerless on his darkened throne, unable to help those who have followed him, because he too is going to be under direct attack from the Almighty God, and he will be suffering right along with everyone else. Satan will know that his time is getting incredibly short, and therefore he will not take long in responding to this direct attack by God on the beast's kingdom. Let's look now, and we'll talk about that, hopefully, if we have time to look at verses 13 and 14, Satan's response to all of this judgment. But right now, let's look at the sixth vial, the shrinking of the Euphrates River. Verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. The outpouring of the sixth bowl judgment closely resembles the sixth trumpet judgment. Remember when the four demons were loosed from the area of the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River measures 1,800 miles in length. That's a long river. And it's from anywhere from three to 1,200 yards in width. So it, it goes from being relatively narrow to very wide. And it varies from 10 to 30 feet in depth. The Euphrates, down through history, has played a major role as a hindering force (coughs) in military movements. And to this day, it still stands as a great natural divider between the East and the West. God tells us that somehow this natural divider between East and West is going to be dried up. Now remember, the two mighty witnesses, back in chapter 11, verse 6, will already have caused the earth to undergo a drought during the days of their prophesying. And then with the tremendous increase in the sun's uh, rays, the sunlight, many of the water sources of the earth will be seriously depleted. So perhaps this will help in drying up the Euphrates River. But exactly how this sixth vial angel will operate to dry it up, there's a picture of it there in the corner, and there's the army of the 200 million coming there. Exactly how he will operate to dry up the Euphrates, we don't know for sure, but we do know that somehow access across this natural barrier will be made possible for the large forces of the kings of the east. And this, this, uh, these are, this army, the kings of the east, most likely um, will consist of that army of 200 million, which we read about back in Revelation 9, verse 16. The kings of the east was a common term in ancient times for the uh, Parthians and for other barbarian peoples who lived east of the Euphrates River and beyond the border of the Roman Empire. The Euphrates River was the eastern border for the Roman Empire. Now whether this massive army, this army of 200 million, which will march across the dried up Euphrates River, will consist of Chinese soldiers, perhaps gathered together with other oriental peoples, or whether it will consist of a Muslim confederation, which we have talked about also in the past, is anybody's guess. Maybe it, they'll be mixed with uh, people from India as well. We, we just don't know, but uh, all of these suggestions are certainly possibilities. Whoever these kings of the East will be, they will march across the Euphrates River Bank, the dried up river bank, to avenge themselves on the hated powers of the West and to attempt to take control of the world for themselves. You see, now they will see that the Antichrist is not quite as powerful as everybody thought as he's sitting there in his kingdom of darkness. And so perhaps they will think this is their opportunity to gain control of the world. The East, you know, has been a sleeping giant for many, many centuries. And perhaps that's what will happen. However, at the time of the Lord's return, all of these forces are going to join together. The ones that come from the east, the west, the north, and the south will join together with the Antichrist in order to fight who? The Lord Jesus Christ as he returns, as is shown in that picture. Between the sixth and the seventh 
bold judgments, just as it was true between the sixth and the seventh seal judgment and between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgment, there is a parenthetical break, you know, to give the reader a little relief in all these judgments. And that's exactly what we find in verses 13 to uh, to 16. There is a parenthetical break. And when we hopefully get back to this, I've entitled this third part of our outline, The Great Variance, because there is a great variance between Satan's scheme that we'll read about in verses 13 and 14 and God's sovereignty, which we read about in 15 and 16. But I'm going to skip that for now. Hopefully we'll get to it, but I don't know. But I do want to finish our um, chronology here of the seven vials by reading the last vial, reading about the last vial, the seventh vial, which is the storm of the end. And for this, let's look at verses 17 to 21. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And what did men do? And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. The word great is found seven times in this seventh vile judgment. It's found a total, I think, of 13 times in this chapter, but seven times with this seventh judgment. This last great judgment actually consists of three parts. First of all, there comes, I don't know where my outline is, it's buried under there somewhere. But first of all, there comes the great voice again, and then we'll talk about the great earthquake, which rearranges the topography of the earth, and then there is the great hail, which falls on those who are even yet blaspheming God. Now, the great voice is the first one, and that's talked about in verse 17. The first six vials were poured out. Let's go back over and review. First of all, poured out on the land, the people, the boils, poured out on the land, the rivers and the streams, the sun, Um, I skipped the sea. Did did I say the sea? The land, the sea, the rivers and the streams, the sun, then the throne of the beast and his kingdom, and then on the Euphrates River. But this greatest plague of all, this seventh plague, is going to be poured out on the earth's atmosphere. John said that the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And from the air, the the plague will spread to the entire earth. Once this vial was emptied, then John heard a great voice. And what did that great voice say from heaven's temple this time? It is done. Well, once again, since this voice proceeds from heaven's temple and also we're told from heaven's throne, we know very clearly that it is the voice of the Lord himself. Now, the words he speaks are words which he spoke on one other occasion, right? He spoke those words that time from the earth. The words he um, spoke in John nineteen thirteen. Uh, John 19.30 were his seventh and his final saying from the cross. Isn't that interesting? And he said, when his redemptive work for mankind was complete, he said, it is finished. It is done. And did you know that there is going to be one more time when the Lord will say these same words? It is done. And that will be in Revelation 21, verse 6, following his creation of the new earth and the new heavens. You see, even the millennial kingdom, as wonderful as it's going to be, it's still going to be imperfect because there will be imperfect men and women living in it because they will still be living in sinful bodies. 
Therefore, following the millennial kingdom, there's going to be one more purging. And then when sin is once and for all time done away with in the creation of the new earth and the new heaven, Christ, for the third and final time, will say, it is done. Aren't you glad you're going to be there to hear him say that? That one especially. I'm pretty relieved to hear him say this one here when we get through with this chapter. But, of course, he hasn't said it yet. But thank God for the one he said on the cross, right? (laughs) The greatest one of all for us when he died for our sins. Well, after hearing the great voice, John tells us, I guess I am supposed to have that one up there. He tells us that he next heard voices and thunders and lightnings, which immediately preceded a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. Twice in that verse, the earthquake is said to be great. Remember, John had similarly heard thunders and lightnings and voices prior to the breaking of the seventh seal judgment back in Revelation 8, 5. He also heard voices and thunders and lightnings before the seventh trumpet judgment blew. And also, if you remember, all three sets of these judgments, seals, trumpets, and bowls, terminated with an earthquake on earth. But this final earthquake will be without precedent in its magnitude. Never, ever has there been or will there be an earthquake quite like this one. It will not only alter the topography of every single nation on the earth, but it will utterly destroy all of the earth's proud cities. Especially will it destroy great Babylon, which we read of in verse 19, and which we will discuss much more when we get to um, chapter 18. The earthquake of this seventh vile judgment, we are told, is even going to affect the great city, and it's going to divide the great city into three sections. However, the great city will not be destroyed. Now, since this great city in the beginning of verse 19 is mentioned separately uh, in the same verse from Great Babylon, we know that this great city is not speaking of Babylon. Now, a lot of commentators say that this was Babylon. However, it is purposely in the same verse distinguished from Babylon. What is that great city that will be divided into three parts but will not be destroyed? It is Jerusalem. Jerusalem has already been referred to as the great city back in Revelation 11.8. So this isn't anything new. And the new Jerusalem is also referred to as the great city in Revelation 21.10. So I believe this speaks of Jerusalem. Jerusalem alone of all of the large proud cities of the world will be spared destruction by this tremendous earthquake at the end of the great tribulation. This is the end of the great tribulation, right? When the seventh vial is finished, the tribulation is over. The next thing that happens is the Lord's return. Jerusalem is the one eternal city which will survive as long as the earth is in its present form. So don't get too attached to Sanford (laughs) or Southern Pines or Raleigh or wherever. Because only Jerusalem is going to survive the great tribulation. And it is the only one which will be eternally replaced as the new Jerusalem in the new earth. Psalm 125 verse 1 says, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, which cannot be removed but abideth forever. So you see, if this great city here in verse 19 was not Jerusalem, would make God's word a lie. Because it says here that Jerusalem cannot be destroyed. And we're told in that verse that every other city is destroyed. So it has to be Jerusalem. And then verse 20, very interesting verse that tells us every island, don't get too attached to Hawaii or the Bahamas either. (laughs) Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. All of the great mountain ranges of this world are going to vanish. 
as I talked about before, is the billions and billions of tons of extra soil and rock from the mountains and the hills fills the ocean basins. What will that do to the islands in the oceans? They'll disappear. They'll join up with the continental land masses so that the topography of the world will be rearranged, preparing it for the beautiful environment of the millennial age, which is going to follow immediately after this earthquake. This last earthquake will actually be the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verses 4 and 5, which predicted something we've all read before, but I wonder how many times we've ever put it into context with the seventh vial judgment of Revelation. You know what that verse says? It says, every valley shall be exalted. What's that mean? Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What happens right after this? The picture. The glory of the Lord is revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. That gave me goosebumps just reading that. The gentle, rolling topography of the original world before the cataclysmic flood is going to be restored. And no more, no more, will there be great, inaccessible, uninhabitable mountain ranges. I thought, oh, my son is not going to be happy about that because he loves to climb in mountains. (laughs) Or no more out-of-the-way, difficult-to-reach islands. All peoples of the world will have access to one another without the barrier of tremendous oceans which separate them today. Nations won't need to be separated during the millennial kingdom because under the benevolent theocratic dictatorship of the Prince of Peace, all nations and all peoples will finally get along with one another. There will be no wars on earth during the kingdom. Good news, isn't it? Well, the final act of judgment from the seventh seventh vile judgment is the great hailstorm, which follows the great earthquake. And this hailstorm parallels the seventh plague in Egypt. In Exodus 9, John tells us that the hail here, however, the hail in Egypt was big, but it doesn't begin to compare with this hail. John tells us that the hail will be the size of huge stones weighing about a talent each. And if he was speaking there of a Greek talent, this means that the hailstones would weigh 50, about 56 pounds apiece. However, if he was speaking in terms of a Jewish talent, the weight would be around 114 pounds each. However, it doesn't really matter if he's talking about a 56-pound hailstone or a 114-pound hailstone. Either weight is going to be well sufficient to kill, maim, or destroy anyone or anything upon which it falls. Because remember, the height from which it's coming. So anything it hits is going to be destroyed. It may well be that these massive boulder-like, God-sent hailstones will rain with particular intensity upon the multitudes of soldiers who, remember now, are going to be pressed tightly together into the valleys and the plains of Israel for the final battle of Armageddon. And perhaps, all this is happening just as the Lord is beginning to come out of the sky to return, Perhaps these hailstones will actually be what the Lord uses to press the iniquity of those over-ripened grapes in the winepress of his wrath. I mean, those hailstones would definitely crush the iniquity of those people, wouldn't it? Could very well be. It's interesting, one commentator made the remark that it is not surprising that God would send hailstones because the punishment for blasphemers in the Mosaic law was that they were to be, what, stoned to death. Interesting, isn't it? Whatever the specific details might be of these hailstones and the earthquake and everything else, the literal scene on earth and at the Battle of Armageddon is going to be far worse than I think we can even begin to imagine. 
as boil-infected, physically worn, and thirsty people still in a spin, you know, from the great earthquake, which will literally shake the entire world and rearrange geography completely, are then bombarded from the sky with these huge, mongongous chunks of ice. Can you just imagine the scene? I mean, I can't. It's hard to imagine it. But what do you suppose the reaction of these earth dwellers will be? Right. For the third time in this chapter, we are told that rather than repent and turn to God for mercy, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Notice that this plague here, this last plague, is described as being exceeding great. That was not even said of the earthquake, which altered the entire face of the earth. So this hailstorm is really, really going to be something. With this final plague of wrath comes the final destruction of every religious, educational, social, and political institution which man has built without God. It will be the collapse of all humanistic hopes and dreams for a utopia built by man's wisdom and man's skills. Yet even with this total realization of utter failure and ultimate destruction, as they even see Christ himself returning in the sky, men will refuse to submit to God. Instead, they are going to blaspheme his very name. You see now why the temple was barred? I mean, you remember when Pharaoh, all the plagues sent on Egypt, he only hardened his heart further and further. That's exactly what men will be doing. See, they will have had plenty of opportunity. They will have had the witness of the two mighty witnesses. They will have had the witness of the 144,000 witnesses. They will have had the witness of Christians who have gone that they might remember um, what they their lives were and what they had said. They'll have the witness of all the scriptures and things we leave behind. They will have had, every man will have had the witness of the everlasting gospel said to them by that angel who will circle the globe. And they will have had the warning judge, all those warnings where God is trying to convict them with the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and yet they will have turned their back every single time on God so God will harden their hearts just as he did with Pharaoh William Barclay wrote this he said the most terrible situation in life is when almighty God is powerless to gain an entry into the citadel of the human heart for God has given men the terrible responsibility of being able to lock their hearts against him. Massive armies, international confederations, and even worldwide opposition will still not be able to thwart the plans of the Lord God. His word will be fulfilled regardless of what men, even aided by the satanic trinity, will be able to think or do. Whatever they do, whatever men do in their self-motivated humanistic interests to demonstrate their superiority to the Christian faith and to the Bible, they are merely going to end up by accomplishing exactly what God had predetermined they would accomplish. Because God is sovereign, man is not sovereign. I'm going to end there, although uh, I regret that because I would like to talk about verses 13 and 14, which talk about the scheme of Satan in all this. He is going to send spirits like frogs, demonic spirits, throughout the world to um, coax the armies of the world to come together for the battle of Armageddon. And let me just give you the three reasons they do that, if I can find those real quickly, because these are important. The armies of the world are going to be drawn together for the final battle of Armageddon for three basic reasons. First of all, they will be there by united action. They will be spurred on by Satan's demons, who are these three frog-like spirits which will come out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the false prophet, and the mouth of the, of the beast. So they come out of each member of the satanic trinity, and they seduce the, the 
the leaders of the world to come together for this battle. They will be spurned on to do this in order to destroy all the Jews in Israel. I mean, to wipe out Israel. Satan's plan is to eliminate Israel so that when Christ returns, he will not be able to save her, as he has promised. And on their way, of course, they will try to also destroy every Christian, because Satan has two enemies, Israel and Christians. And so they will be there under Satan's scheme, with, by the, the trickery of these demonic spirits. Secondly, they will be there to settle their own bitter animosities. So the armies will come together for the battle of Armageddon because of their own carnal natures. They will want to determine once and for all which earthly power will control the world. And thirdly, they will be there because God wants them there. They will be gathered into the winepress of the wrath of God so that when the Lord Jesus returns, he can smite them in judgment and take back this earth, which is his, both by way of creation and by way of redemption. Now that final reason they don't know about, and they won't know about until the end, until it happens. Then in verses... um, Uh, 15 and 16, we had the scheme of Satan is in verses 13 and 14, but the sovereignty of God is seen in verses 15 and 16. He says, behold, I come as a thief. Now that's Christ speaking there. He comes as a thief to the world, but never to his own. He come, he's going to come and, as a thief and rob the world. But he says, Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth, keepeth his garments. That's a promise to the believers who will be living. He says, Just hang in there. you know, Be faithful. Keep watching. Keep your garments, lest you walk naked and they see your shame. I don't have time to explain all that. But that's the third beatitude, the third blessing that we have been given so far in the book of Revelation. And there are a total of seven Revelation beatitudes. This is the third one. And then we end up by, by saying in verse 16, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. I want you to notice that that pronoun he, and he gathered them to Armageddon, goes back to verse 14, referring to God Almighty. So who is it that brings them to Armageddon? Is it Satan, really? Is it the selfishness of men, really? No, God is the one who's sovereign, and he is bringing them there for their final judgment.